All right, Wayne Bettis here, the founder of the Off The Tools podcast. I just want to introduce you to our brand new sponsor, directplumbingsupplies.com. It is founded by a former tradesman who has set up his own plumbing and heating merchants. He has an online shop, which is obviously at directplumbingsupplies.com, and he delivers across the UK. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome to this next installment of the Trades Growth Summit. Today, I am delighted, I actually have the pleasure of introducing this gentleman. He is the author of Life on a Fred. He was a former police officer, a former 21 SAS trooper, a Help for Heroes ambassador, a paddy driving instructor, driving, diving instructor, and just overall, just such an inspirational guy. Welcome, Jamie. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, good. I, I, you know, the the whole point of of what we're putting on here is to raise money for Help for Heroes. So before we kick off, I just want to say anyone that can, please donate. You know, it's such a good cause and much needed right now. Um, and Jamie has come here to share his story, you know, share some lessons that he's experienced, um, all in the in the in the aim of raising money for help for heroes. So please make sure you do that. So Jamie, I'll, I'll hand the baton, so to speak, over to over to you. And um, yeah, let's let's uh, have a listen. My pleasure. Okay, so when I turn the clock back, and one of my very earliest memories. I'm about six years of age and I've got my face pressed up against one of those metal mesh fences. You know, the kind of fences that form the perimeter or the boundary of obviously something important if it's a metal mesh fence, you know, quite a high quality. And I'm staring at this fence and I'm looking through it and there's barbed wire running across the top and it was none other than the boundary fence of Luton Airport. And back in the day, you could get quite close to the action. So there I was, six years of age, stood on the outside of that perimeter fence. My little brother to my right-hand side, my grandfather to my left-hand side. And my grandfather had given us this broken pair of binoculars. So we had half a monocle each, my brother and I. Meanwhile, he had the shiny new, big fancy Gucci pair. And we were effectively staring downrange through the fence beyond at the active runway of Luton Airport in the distance. And the pilots were busying themselves, throttling up the engines. The noise, I remember, was incredible. The atmosphere, the noise of those jet engines. And I was receiving the backwash of the uh, kerosene fuel coming back downwind into my nostrils. And I'm thinking, wow, this is incredible. This is exciting. This is uh, really quite something. And that kind of memory resonated with me for quite some time. And I figured that maybe one day I wouldn't mind having the opportunity to perhaps learn to fly myself. And indeed, perhaps that's where the the inspiration and the seed for aviation was born within me. But fast forward, and life does often take some different twists and turns along the way. And then I was... um, growing up in school and I actually found that um, I was quite blessed in the physicality department. So I was very much um, a keen amateur sportsman, interested in football, rugby, athletics. In the summertime, I used to try and participate in a bit of cricket, but I was a lousy batsman for the record. Uh, But I was a very keen sportsman. I used to try all sorts of different things and put my hand to it. And I found that I had a bit of a, skill set when it came to endurance. I can remember a fun run in the school field and we were raising monies for some local charity. I think it could have been a local hospice in the, uh, in the town where I grew up in Bedfordshire. And we were asked to do a lap of the field and then we could earn, I think it was like 50 pence back in the day. And I set myself this target. So there I was running around the perimeter of the field And they were pretty much half a mile loops of the school field. And I ended up running and running and running. And I ended up doing something ridiculous, like 
about 40 laps of the field. So I ran about 20 miles and for when, you know, thinking about it for, you know, realistically for an 11, 12 year old kid, that's quite an ordeal to push yourself in that way. And I realized that I had something and I think other people looking on school teachers and so on realized that I had a bit of a flair for endurance, but that would come later. Moving on in life, I grew up, I traveled around the world for a bit. I went off backpacking at a young age, didn't come home for over a year, probably about 13 months or so. And I'd been through Africa, Australasia, New Zealand, Fiji, Hawaii, North America, parts of Europe before bouncing back into London with a stride in my step and a wag in my tail. I was very interested in some of the skills that I'd actually picked up along the way. And without sort of harping on about all of that uh, epic trip, and that was kind of university of life for me. But I ended up uh, working in the dive industry, volunteering my services, first of all, to get, to get uh, the experience. And I, I wound my way up the ladder. And then within about six months on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, having done a lot of voluntary work, I was a paddy dive master, which is akin to a supervisory grade. I was guiding people on the reef a ratio of one to eight. And I was assisting the instructors and I was learning about the industry. Above all, I was learning about taking responsibility and uh, playing a key part in an industry where there is inherent risk and thereby making calculated risks as a member of that industry in the role that I was performing. When I got back to the UK, eventually I decided to embark on something a bit more normal, so to speak. But what is normal? But I ended up going into the police service with Thames Valley Police. And I had um, a wonderful few years, short and sharp, as I would call it, because I never intended to stay in the police for the full duration, some 30 years. But I did several years of short and sharp service, going well beyond my probationary period as a young PC in the Thames Valley. My job was fast and furious, responding on the nines, the blue lights, and sirens. And I would respond to jobs all over the force area eventually. So Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire, and the county of Berkshire in the south. Thames Valley was the third largest force in the country. Pretty busy, and I was always at the thick of it, days, late, nights. I learned again about working with the public and about having some responsibility and trying to hold my head up in, in challenging times and ultimately my body trying to recover through the different shift patterns, changing days, lates, and nights. But then I was looking for something bigger picture, so to speak. So I made a concerted decision to apply for a sabbatical, like an official career break. And I was granted that period back in the day by the governors of the force. And then I went off traveling around the world again, lo and behold. But this time I was armed, if you like, with a back pocket ticket of uh, being a qualified scuba instructor, something that I was very passionate about and that I did in my own time on the side, as it were. So I went off armed with this ticket and I worked briefly in uh, Jamaica, then went off to the Philippines and I ran a very remote um, conservation project in the South China Sea on a tiny little island living like Robinson Crusoe, literally. One of the hardest things was not actually my role, as expedition leader, dive guide, and all-round sort of safety supervisor for the safety of the exped, that was actually relatively straightforward if you use your general kind of, you know, experience and your sort of intelligence to control, you know, your role within the job and look after the people. But actually the hardest thing I found was generally looking after the welfare of folk. Living on an island, I learned what it was to endure a level of um, limited resource, shall we say. So we had blue barrels of water that we had to bus into the island every single day. Not easy, because you've got 50 thirsty mouths to support. And feeding as well was often difficult. Everything had to be shipped in. There was no running water. There were no mod cons. There were no refrigerators. This was early millennium in the year 2000. So life in the, in the Philippines back then was definitely quite um, limited and certainly the resources were very much lacking. You had to very much plan ahead and think on your feet 
in order to sustain up to 50 lives at any one time on the expedition when it came to feeding and hydration particularly. So I learned an awful lot about looking after my contemporaries or my oppos on the expedition. And ultimately, it it taught me about digging deep within myself to find it within myself to, if you like, uh, sustain morale when when times were a little bit challenging and times at times could be somewhat difficult compared to normal life back home. When I got back to the UK following the expedition, I felt pretty, you know, happy in myself. I had a spring in myself. I wanted to take a sabbatical. Uh, or rather, on using the sabbatical, I wanted to use a little bit more time to affect. So rather than just keep uh, swanning around the world doing different roles as a diving instructor, I decided to embark on some higher education as a mature student, now in my mid-20s. So I went off to um, the University of East Anglia and I embarked upon a languages degree, specifically Scandinavian. Some might say that's a bit bizarre, that's a bit weird, but I did have some influence on my my mother's side of the family, and I was always somewhat curious, so I thought this might be quite cool. I'll go out to Norway and I'll live the dream. I'll live in the great outdoors, and that's exactly what I did. I managed to blag myself um, working in a centre that predominantly taught me um, nothing but mountain rescue-type skills And working with scenarios in the mountains, I learned about ice, I learned about skiing, and I learned about all of the um, important, um, you know, drills and skills of working in the mountains within the Scandinavian climate. And it was a wonderful learning curve for me. You know, I remember being like Bambi on stilts when I was first taken to the slopes in Norway, but with some coaching, with some experience from the local guys, before long, I was not only alpine, but I was Telemark and Langlauf and all those uh, kind of uh, weird and wonderful techniques that the Norwegians pretty much invented um, some thousand years ago. But I learned skills, and it's not so much of a boast, but I'd had quite a full, you know, a rounded and fulfilled life, um, certainly up until my late 20s. And then when I came back to the UK, uh, what, what I didn't mention that, in my first year, I joined um, something called the Cambridge University Officer Training Corps, which was just down the road, and we attached to them. And this was a bit of a turning point for me because I realised that um, life did have that bigger picture in terms of potential employment prospects that I was looking for, potentially the global picture. And I'm talking about the British Army and what that had to offer through the origins for me of Cambridge OTC. So I embarked on my training and then some with the OTC. I had some pretty keen COs or commanding officers that recognised that I was a mature student. I'd been around the world. I'd done this and I'd done that and recently been in Norway doing all these uh, skills with the Norwegians. So what did they do? The CO at the time sent me back to Norway to do courses with the British Army in skiing and ski tour leader and then instructing. And I became quite well qualified with what I did. Uh, was able to then offer the skills back to my oppos and my fellow soldiers within uh, Cambridge OTC. So I ended up heading back down to places like uh, Austria to lead some of the uh, the ski expeds, ski racing, ski touring in the mountains and so on. And then the the clock was kind of drawing in for my time at the OTC. And I'd done an awful lot. So I'd done a couple of Cambrian patrols to gain experience in the Welsh mountains with those squidgy, big, fat baby's heads and heavy packs on my back. The baby's head's underfoot, so you've got to be careful you don't roll an ankle. And you're carrying 50, 60 pounds on your back in all kinds of inclement weathers. And again, what was it all about for me? Well, skills, experience, obviously. But fundamentally, I was learning to dig deep once again. I was learning to draw on those finite resources within the body and really to pull it out of the bag in terms of getting from A to B to C to D and to finish the mission, say, for example, within the Cambrian patrol and, and learn what it was to be a soldier at an elite level. So then beyond that, I got a bit of confidence. And if you like, I was kind of given a nod um, and... I was able to make an application for something called the P Company, 
which is the parachute regimental selection for the British Army uh, Parachute Regiment. And at P Company, um, I've discovered, quite frankly, that I had to dig just that little bit deeper all over again because it was just uh, an ethically nails course. Um, they really do seemingly push you to the edge of what a human being is capable of. It seems like morning and afternoon each day for some, you know, one month period during the entire time on that course with the pre-para, with the main body, and then with the test week at the end. But I actually surprised myself because um, although I found it utterly um, tough and, you know, you know, I really had to kind of find it within myself to keep going, but I came through, I would say, relatively unscathed, black and blue and blistered and, you know, bruised and all the rest of it. But I did come through with a relative, you know, spring in my step still, although I was pretty beaten up, as I mentioned. But that also gave me the confidence as to, okay, well, that was that. That was B Company. And then what could be next? Okay, what could be next? I still wasn't quite finished with my time in the OTC. But what could be next? And I guess I'd found the understanding within myself and the reasoning that something deep down made me tick, remember, in that endurance sense. And I got a real wag in my tail, if you like. When the going got tough, I kind of stepped up a gear and I was able to deliver. And again, it's not so much of a boast. It was just, I guess, the kind of individual that I am. And I recognized how I was made as that said individual and what made me tick. So I remember going back and having various conversations with the, you know, the senior staff with uh, Cambridge and the, again, the, the new commanding officer. And they said, so what is it you're interested in doing? And I said, well, I'm definitely interested in potentially having a role beyond my studies at university and enduring, you know, my time with the, the British army somehow. I'd like to feel that I could, um, you know, have a role to play and and uh, and have an effort that uh, I could step up to. And then we had various conversations, like I mentioned. And then the the task or the goal came up um, with an idea for me to actually put myself forward with their recommendation for UK Special Forces. And I hadn't really thought about this myself, but admittedly, I'd read a few books, and I thought, my God, you know, I'd read some of these accounts, and they sounded just horrendous. And I know I'd been through a few ordeals up until now, but nothing like that. And I thought that um, if I could, you know, maybe stand a chance on selection, it was going to be a very small chance because of the accounts that I'd written. It kind of almost scared me off. But then another part of me thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You'd done what you'd done to get to this point within the unit and you'd done a few sort of ticks in boxes and various um, experiences and you're still here. And actually, you were pretty successful with what you'd done in the past. So I genuinely thought nothing ventured, nothing gained. Sometimes in life, ladies and gents, I realise we've got to put our best foot forwards. And if we do that, then we might just surprise ourselves. So that's precisely what I do. With a little bit of encouragement and a bit of self-confidence and belief, I was able to put my best foot forward. So I embarked on a long and arduous selection programme, the longest in the British Army, some 13 months as a reservist. And it's split into two phases. The first phase within the mountains for six months, or the hills phase, and the second phase, well, let's just say that's sort of weapons and tactics. And again, you know, it was a kind of a repetition of what I'd already done, but the difference was in the mountains in the first phase, it was all about me as an individual, testing myself as an individual on my own, solo. And that was the fundamental difference for the first time. I was now really on my own without that close-knit support network. And I was testing myself. And, of course, they were looking at me under a magnifying glass during the selection process for uh, 2-1 SAS specifically. So I kept trudging away, remember, over those baby heads and over those mountains, crossing rivers and working in all sorts of, sort of frantic weather systems day and night uh, for the first six months. And then I came through the test week, again, beaten up, black and blue, blistered and bruised. But I got to the other side and the belief was still there. The light was still burning. 
And I thought, you know what, if I stay hungry for this, I might just be able to hold on and I might just have it in the bag. So I kept pushing and the numbers kept dwindling around me. We started with a big number and we ended up with a very, very small number of guys left at the end of it. And to my real astonishment, the fact that I'd really, really dug very, very deep, I was still there after 13 months. And I did surprise myself by actually getting badged. And then I was in the unit. And then for several years, heading, heading up with operational training tasks all over the world, I literally bounced from pillar to post, it felt like. And I was in and out of different locations from Central America to um, the back and forth to the States with US oppos and contemporaries to uh, deepest Africa to parts of uh, Europe and indeed the cold, blistering cold back in Scandinavia, this time up in the very, very northern reaches of the Arctic Circle and temperatures down to negative 45 degrees Celsius. So I had a lot of experience all over the world from negative temperatures to plus temperatures in the deserts and the jungle and so on. But what was this all about? What was this all about for me? Jamie Hull, and call that version 1.0, the old me. So what that was all about, quite frankly, was, was me, my life, getting the most out of life, grabbing life by the horns, fulfilling the ride, living the journey, living life. And that's what it was all about. And I never stopped. And I lived that life as best I knew how. And I kept pushing and I was proud of the role that I held for a short number of years, only five years with the forces, seven years overall with the previous unit. But um, very proud of my role and nice to be able to say that, yes, I did it to an extent. But admittedly, the rug got pulled. And sometimes, and it's not necessarily in our control, life can turn on a sixpence. But you know what? It's not about dwelling on it and it's not about fretting on what's happened in life it's about dealing with that moment and it's about moving forward as best you can and sometimes working with the new toolkit so this is what happened to me and in the summer of 2007 I was just about to embark on a tasking out in the Middle East and that never quite happened for me because I had a self fulfilled personal ambition to wish to or want to learn to fly. That was the desire. And remember that probably harked back to that very early childhood memory. Remember with that broken monocle from my late grandfather and hence the inspiration there. And I remember specifically thinking, okay, well, we've just been given the nod to go to Afghan. And I'd been working with the regiment for long enough to know what the risks were and to know that there's a chance that I might not be coming back. So I thought, you know what, guess what? I would like to fulfill this personal ambition that I've always considered and pondered on in my life, that was to learn to fly. So I thought, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. I went to the US Embassy in London. I got my visa, which was a tricky task in itself, persuading the authorities that I wasn't a threat, remember, post 9-11. And I'm a foreigner wanting to learn to fly in US airspace for all intents and purposes. I chose to go to America because of the likelihood of a better meteorological window or conditions, weather, in other words. I wanted the weather to be better all round, give me that window, versus the UK, which could have just hit me with torrential rainfall over a dodgy summer. You never know. So I chose to go to America, got my visa. I'm going to fast forward one month now. And I'm there pinching myself at altitude. I'm in the left-hand skipper seat of the aircraft. I'm now qualified to fly solo on my own in the cockpit. I look left at that canopy window. I look forward, look right, look left again. I'm in the downhill straight and I make my final turns crosswind. Just before I turn crosswind, I'd looked at that left-hand canopy window. I saw a visible thin streak of yellow, orange flame. It was clearly emanating from the front part of the aircraft, the front portion of the fuselage, where the engine is. I quickly recognized it as an obvious engine fire, flames coming from the engine. 
initial panic started to well up in my mind as I'm thinking about what's going on, trying to process the situation and the moment. Thinking about it, it's all coming on top. I make that left-hand 90-degree banking turn, crosswind. As I turn crosswind, the fire starts raging past the windshield and the left-hand canopy window. Somehow I managed to focus, I managed to make my final turn now into wind, approaching the active runway towards the ground in the distance below. As I'm now turning final turn into wind, that increased back pressure on the front of the engine and the aircraft fuselage, if you will, from the wind, causes the fire to breach the cockpit internally, immediately as I turn into wind, aiming from the runway below. I look down, I see flames starting to lap around my feet and ankles. Oh my God, oh my God, this is for real. This is no drill. This is an emergency. I'm thinking about it. I'm starting to get quite heated. My heart is boom, 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 like a jackhammer in my chest. I'm breathing frantically, <laughs> hyperventilating, aware of the panic that's, that's building up in my mind. I'm descending, descending, descending. Nose heavy as I'm gliding in all the way down towards the active runway in the distance. I'm watching altimeter spin down through 900 feet now, 800 feet, 700 feet, 600 feet. I'm trying to process it. I'm trying to take it all in. I'm trying to stay calm. I'm trying to avert panic in my mind. But I'm consciously aware of the adrenaline spike in my blood causing me to panic as I'm thinking about it all. The situation is racing all around me. The fire is building up in the cockpit. I'm looking down at the feet on the rudder pedals. I can barely see my feet now. My lower limbs are engulfed in flame. I'm still running in 500 feet indicated now on altimeter in front of me. Oh my God. Suddenly I get a light bulb moment and I know instinctively what I've got to do. It was like the decision just came to me out of the blue despite the panic that was welling up beforehand. And I knew what I had to do. I veered gently on the stick, just a few degrees, just nudging that stick in my knees to the left. Left hand on the control stick, right hand on the throttle. I knocked off the throttle fully in the center column. I'm still descending, 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 losing altitude on altimeter in front. And I can see it looking out the window, looking left, looking right, judging it by eyeball. I'm veering in now towards a grassy embankment in the distance away from the concrete runway below, still descending, judging it purely by eye. A couple of hundred feet above the ground, I've got the tower in my ear looking for an update. I rip off my headset. I toss it in the opposite footwell so it's out of my way. I'm a bit concerned about the flex lead cable being a hindrance. I lean across. I open the left-hand canopy door. I have to elbow it and punch it and strike it with the heel of my hand because it's still held down by some wind from exterior. Luckily, I managed to nudge the door to the open and vertical position, a bit like a Lamborghini-style car door. That's good because the door is now open, but it's bad because there's an increased windage coming into the cockpit. What does that do? It grows the flames all around me. Suddenly, flame is blowing against my face and my neck and literally, it's around my ears. I'm hyperventilating hard. I'm trying to protect the corner of my mouth in a vain bid to protect my airway from flame ingress. I've got one eye shut, also in a vain bid to protect my eyes behind the wraparound sunglasses. <clears throat> I'm hyperventilating. One eye shut. I'm gliding in. Left hand on the control stick, right hand on the throttle. I managed to look through the canopy window still, left, right, forwards. I managed to determine the height above ground. And then when the moment was right, 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet, judging it purely by eyeball now, flame all around me, lapping my face, my neck. At 20 feet, I was like Jack Rabbit. I managed to clamber up onto the seat, over the door lip to my left, out onto the left wing. And I didn't hesitate. I looked only at the horizon. I did not look down. Looked at the horizon. 
I then jumped out and took a giant leap off the back, the trailing edge of the left wing, snapped my feet and knees together, hands clapped above my head, and I jumped through the back of the left wing, from the back of the left wing, at a height estimated approximately 1,515 feet when I left that wing, running in at about 30 knots, so probably 32, 33 miles an hour. Bang. I landed like a sack of spuds, feet together in the long grass, soft ground. But then I thrust forwards, popped my collarbone, smashed my face on the grass below. Bilateral nasal fracture, superorbital eye socket fractures bilaterally above both eyes. Multiple soft tissue lacerations. I ripped through the right side of the nose, through the crease, that's the alar, through the nose, through the right side of lip tore it right open. My left index finger hyperextended and fractured on impact with the ground. I rolled around in the grass momentarily, smothered out the flame on my right shoulder and my right scalp, which was like a Roman candle, burning furiously. I remembered the aircraft. Oh, my God. I quickly got into a fetal position, but I couldn't help myself looking through the slats in my fingers. The aircraft run off into the distance. Nose heavy, left wing down. She's probably only 70 feet away from me now. And I physically watched my own aircraft pile into that ground, that soft ground in the distance because of recent torrential rainfall. Ugly, crashing, crumpling noise. And then a subsequent pause, maybe eight, ten seconds. All of a sudden, boom, the almighty explosion short proximity away from me. Luckily, I was outside the fire radius of that explosion, but not outside of the shockwave. Shockwave came through me and reverberated back again. In the moment, I decided I need to get away. I need to create distance. It was purely instinctively, the heat and the inferno from the burning wreckage. I desperately tried to crawl away 180 degrees um, in opposition from the wreckage. And I tried to crawl away, leopard crawl, through that long grass. In doing so, all I simply did was cause more trauma. The sharp Florida tropical razor grass ripping my face, my scalp, my elbows, my knees. I managed to get about 15 feet until I realized it was futile. I was utterly spent. A man on the edge, a man on a knife edge, life on a thread. I managed to get up onto my knees to survey the wreckage in the distance, probably only 80 to 90 feet away from me, still burning furiously. All of a sudden, I heard the sirens woo, 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 in the distance. I knew they were coming for me. My God, is this what's become of me? Is this what it's all about? Burned pretty much from head to toe. No hope, no life. Endex, game over. This is what's happened. This is what I've become. Grief flooded me like you wouldn't believe. The anguish of grief and sorrow flooded me, followed by despair, sorrow, reminiscing about the past. Everything came flooding in because I had time. This wasn't an instantaneous trauma. I had time to think about it, time to think about the aftermath. The worst situation on the planet, having just witnessed it, experienced it, and then you're mulling it, you've got time to mull it all over before the emergency services arrive. The pain was simultaneously indescribable, off the charts. That's all I can say, because no words could give it uh, justice in terms of what I felt that day. But somehow I hung on. Despite all of that, <clears throat> I hung on like a mouse on a thread and I knew my life was in the balance and I waited and the ambulance grew closer, but it wasn't just the ambulance. It was a full scale emergency response, police, fire, ambulances. All of a sudden, the ambulance guys got to me. They must have hit me with morphine because life was pretty damn good. And I remember thinking, wow, this is incredible. But I knew in my subconscious that um, it was bad. It was very bad indeed. 
Another five minutes later, they wheeled me over some rough ground um, in the back of the ambulance. And then all of a sudden, the unmistakable and the unmistakable downdraft as well. They moved me into the back of a chopper and then they airlifted me a short distance, probably some 25 minutes through Orlando airspace. I got lucky at this point. Following the questioning, hey man, can you uh, confirm some details for us? Just tell us your name. I told the guy my name, the doctor in the back of the hospital. He'd introduced himself. Your date of birth, sir. Can you confirm your date of birth? I told him my date of birth. Do you have an insurance policy, sir? Yeah, mate. I've got an insurance policy. Shortly after that, arriving in the hospitals, the curtains came down and it was black. It might as well have been black of the ace of spades. But I did not know what the future held. And as far as I was concerned, I wasn't necessarily going to make it. Little did I realise that they'd placed me in Orlando Regional into a drug-induced coma because of the severity of the burns that I'd endured, some 63% third and fourth degree burns. And to give you an indication of how bad it was and what they had to do for me in the States, the medical bill some 14 years ago totaled 2.7 million US dollars. So it gives you an indication, and that's why I mentioned that. Somehow through the darkness, I was able to hold on, like I mentioned. Six months later, I wake up in Chelmsford in Essex, and all of a sudden I've got an Essex nurse bending my ear, and she's talking to me in my ear. I can't see. The eyes are still somewhat traumatised. There's this dense fog, and my ears are the same. I don't hear too well. A lot of tinnitus, constant ringing in my ears. And I'm trying to make head nor tail of the environment and what the hell is going on. But I'm somewhat confused because I remembered an American voice beforehand, an American nurse. Now, all I get is, all right, Jamie, got to get you moving now, my love. Got to get you moving. Got to get you up and about. Got to get you sat up in bed at the very least today. Let's get these curtains open. Let's get these, this window open. Get some fresh air in, my love. And I'm like, what the? I can't believe what's going on. I'm trying to process it all, to try and take it all in. Long story short, the nurse tells me within the preceding minutes, perhaps an hour or whatever, what had happened. I'm in Chelmsford in Orlando. Sorry, I beg your pardon. I'm in Chelmsford Hospital in the Burns Unit, the Central Burns Unit for the UK. And I'm being dealt with around the clock. I'm now on a, a step-down unit, having been in the ICU there for some weeks on the step down, and I have to learn to re rehabilitate now. I've got to learn to feed. I've got to learn to write because my hand is somewhat crippled. Hell, I've got to learn to walk all over again. I've got two strapping male physios that put me in like a baby harness type gizmo, and they're strapping me and, and supporting me up behind me, and they're basically teaching me to walk all over again. Imagine the indignity let alone when you've been the guy that I was, you know, just it felt like moments before. And now I've got to do all these things over again, which we take for granted as everyday human beings. You know, the feeding, the writing, the walking, if you will. We take all that kind of stuff for granted because I'd been laid up for six months. I had to do that all over again. It was hard to pick up where I left off, if you like, to find the new version of me, version 2.0, I'm going to call that, because it took me a long time. And truth be told, you know, my mental health was in the gutter and I had to really dig deep to just to try to, you know, to pick my morale up every single day and try and work with that, as well as the physical side of the rehabilitation. 18 months later, and the truth is I wanted to check out, but I kept going and I kept fighting. And there was some encouragement along the way from friends family, medical intervention and professionals. And ultimately, the will has to come from within. And that's what I learned about. I learned that you have to hold on. You have to dig, especially deep. That with the encouragement of those around you, you can fight through. And that's what I learned. And then came the intervention of some charity that got behind me. So smaller charities at first, and I was a beneficiary of a couple of smaller charities. 
Um, you know, there was Blesma, there was um, the uh, Pilgrim Bandits, and then Help for Heroes came to my aid in addition. And they invited me, first of all, on a couple of sporting challenges. And you might think, my God, well, what was all that about when the guy had been laid up for six months? But by this stage, um, I was actually a year and a half on, and I'd already learned to walk all over again, and I'd been pushing myself and been pushing myself in the local area, and I was back up to walking eight miles per day. So this is where it starts to get at least a little bit more uplifting, the narrative, as it were, and version 2.0. And I learned to walk, and I learned to push myself, and I learned to push those boundaries, and I learned to push the envelope of what I was kind of capable of each day. And by the end of the second year in the hospital, I pretty much learned to walk. But by the end of the third year, I was walking eight miles per day within the local area back in my hometown in Bedfordshire, using the local environment. So woodland to get a bit of, uh, you know, all terrain sort of uh, footwork in, as it were, a bit of gradient underfoot as well. And, um, you know, not just the local woodland, but I used the canal towpath. So with the local environment, I made use of it. I followed the Grand Union Canal towpath because it went on and on and on. And I could get my miles up there and I could kind of tick those miles off and I could feel better about my recovery. And you know what? That promoted my um, cellular recovery and my meta metabolism. And then I was able to increase my appetite and I was able to eat more as a result and then in turn promote the, the healing in the, in the sense of the cellular recovery of my skin. And the healing was, um, should we say, um, somewhat accelerated as a result of my sheer determination and activity, I would suggest. So the moral of the story is I was able to get myself off the sofa and really start pushing and keep pushing. And that was what it was all about for me in terms of healing, recovery, rehabilitation. And I guess when um, some of the personalities at Health Heroes realised that I was quite motivated First of all, they offered me a place on the London Marathon. And um, with great will and determination, I was able to actually bounce around that London Marathon in, um, in six hours and 15 minutes. That's not bad for a bloke that, had, um, that was rendered with um, partially paralysed feet from um, a loss of muscle, nerve and sinew. Um, courtesy of surgeons in America, but it was either that or they were going to have to amputate both of my lower limbs because they were so deeply burned on the front side from the cockpit burn. So it's um, a significant story I would, um, you know, hasten to add for the listeners in terms of a very long-winded road and some three years um, in the medical sense because I didn't really fully get out of hospital. Two years inpatient, a year at home, but constantly back and forward uh, for surgeries. I had 63 surgeries under general anaesthetic. So in other words, they needed to knock me out, put me to sleep 63 times in order to repair me to a multitude of skin grafts, be it um, human donor skin, pig skin, uh, artificial skin, and you name it. But I had all sorts of orthopedic jobs, so elbows, um, um, you know, uh, bits and pieces to repair some of the damage, uh, lots of soft tissue and cartilage, cartilaginous type operations uh, to repair um, the handsome boat race that you see in front of you. You can see I had a lot of damage to ears. Unfortunately, they couldn't really get that back unless they take a lot more cartilage from my ribs, and I wasn't too keen about that. But it's a, a very challenging and comprehensive and also complex journey um, for a Burns patient. Um, but my story is relatively simple. And one thing I learned is that obviously with the encouragement and you know the good nature of the charity behind me, as well as family and friends and help for heroes, I was able to ultimately fight through and make a, a semblance of normal life all over again. And, um, and, and relatively active health, I would like to add. And that's my testimony, that with great will and indeed determination, we can surprise ourselves. And no matter how dark life may seem, seemingly stoop, that we can pull it out of the bag 
and we can all of us overcome the greatest challenges. And that is where I'd like to leave it, ladies and gents, and hopefully having given you some food for thought and make you realise that um, if you're having a bad day, just think of me, Jamie Hull, and the life and the experience that I've been through, and that hand on heart, I can honestly say this is version 2.0 because it was that much of a life changer. But listen, I enjoy life as version 2.0 and I crack on and lots of good things in the pipeline. So, you know, watch this space. Also, lots of challenges behind me now. And I was able to retrain as a pilot and go on to achieve lots of wonderful, almost miraculous kind of endeavours and achievements. Um, Recently climbing the ladder to become a paddy course director in the dive world, having recertified as a balloon and airship pilot, believe it or not, um, thanks to a scholarship a few years back. And um, I went on also to qualify as a mountain guide, mountain leader, and I was able to uh, thereby lead a lot of expeds for young persons around the world and continue to share my story, hopefully uh, to uh, inspire and give hope to others along the way. And I think uh, hopefully that's what it's all about. So uh, thank you very much for listening. And, and I would urge you all of you to, um, if you can, even in some very small way, get behind this charity because the need for veteran support doesn't go away. And many veterans um, have far more pressing needs that are ongoing uh, in comparison with myself. I was lucky that I made quite a strong recovery but many veterans aren't quite so fortunate. And also many veterans I know do suffer intently in the post-traumatic stress department and hence the need for us as a charity to continue to support uh, such veterans, uh, servicemen and women, and indeed their families along the way. So I would urge you to still support that cause and get behind Help for Heroes. And thank you very much for listening. All the best. Wow. Thank you so much, Jamie. Um, how inspirational, emotional that Jesus, you know, I, 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 I'm not often lost for words. Um, but I could have, I could have sat there and just, you could have just carried on talking, you know, that, that could have really, you know, I, I just, it mind blowing what, what you've been through. Um, and more importantly, do you know how you've overcome that? That you know that that's the key, isn't it? Because you could have gave up. There, there was probably many opportunities along that way where you probably felt like it as well, which I think you touched on. And you know, I, I've had the pleasure so of reading uh, Jamie's book. I listened to it on audio and read along with it at the same time because Jamie uh, spoke the words in the audio book, which just make it so much more powerful. So it's all available on Amazon. There's going to be links to this, but. If you want, you know, today has just been a short sort of version of, of Jamie's life. This book takes you through it. it. It's like you're holding his hand as he's going, living it. Honestly, guys, you need to, you need to go out and, and get this book. Um, and it, it will change your viewpoint and change your determination and, and, and just shows what one single man can go through, but still yet despite all of that, in spite of all of that, thrive, you know? Um, and obviously that leads that leads me on. Have you got time for one or two quick questions? Yeah, no problem at all. Happy to answer some questions, yeah. So, you know, I, I touched on you are now thriving. Yeah, you've sort of over, overcome this adversities. Um, what's next for you? What, what, what's next on, on, on your journey? Well, there'll be... Um... There'll be obviously the, the journey as a speaker continues. I address a lot of different audiences from, you know, younger sort of schools audiences to even, you know, some of the biggest corporates out there. Um, I, you know, it's a privilege to be able to, to share the story and to hopefully give some nuggets of inspiration to, to listeners out there um, <clears throat> and, and just give them a bit of hope, really. I think that's what, that's what it's all about. Um, but also, you know, my active kind of role in life continues. I, I'm still involved in like the expedition world and um, and specifically diving. It's a big passion of mine and it still continues. And I, I work with, um, um, you know, wounded uh, and injured and, and in some cases sick servicemen to try to help um, 
help them on their own recovery pathways and journeys. And I use the medium, if you like, or the platform of scuba diving to, to nurture that process and to, to help them. Because I, from my own testimony, it was one of the things that certainly helped me. And I got back into my diving and, and let's just say the saltwater environment was really beneficial and therapeutic um, and everything to my mind and, and, and helped to uh, progress the healing of my skin because of that mineral balance in the ocean. Um, and I got a tremendous amount of that. So I, I hand on heart, you know, realized that it could help others. Hence why I was able to push myself further in the industry to, to be able to give more as a, a senior instructor. So I do work with um, some pretty injured service personnel. That's kind of what I specialize in. And I'm working with a gentleman um, uh, that I'm going to be testing just this week. And then subsequently, if it works out, I'm going to be uh, taking this uh, particular serviceman out to the Caribbean. And not because I'm looking for a jolly, but um, <laughs> it's because um, it's more conducive to comfort for the subject, for the guy that I'm working with. And it's a, it's a nice um, um, secluded and protected body of open water and the temperatures are nice and warm. And um, it's far more, as I say, it's far more conducive to their comfort and their enjoyment. So a lot of my work is typically in the tropics. I wouldn't entertain, for example, what I do in the River Thames or indeed in the English Channel. Um, so I do get away from time to time. I quite enjoy that, but ultimately it's nice to help other people on their journeys and with their recoveries and so on. So, yeah, um, lots of things fantastic. going on. And, and it's nice to keep motivated in that sense. But I keep I remain I remain active. I'm not quite the sort of high speed soldier that I once was because of injury and, and a bit of disability. But I don't let it hold me back. And I enjoy being active. So I enjoy walking or hiking. Um, I enjoy a push bike. You know, riding the bicycle. If if but I'm a bit fair weather cyclist. Only the sun shows its that shows itself. And um, I really enjoy swimming as well. It kind of links in with my passion for the water. I like to keep strong in the pool and probably do at least uh, two, three solid swimming sessions per week. And I, I like to sort of do the endurance in the pool and bash out a few lengths. And I get, I get a tremendous amount from that as well. So, wow. yeah. Yeah, sounds like you're very you, you you've got plenty plenty to to be involved with going forward and and keeping very active. So it's just amazing. Um, this this question's just a bit of a random one. Um, you know, looking back on on the military side of of your of your life, what what was the the the, the biggest challenge? You mentioned a few things. Obviously, in the book, you go into a lot more detail. But yeah, what what, what was the hardest part of of that journey? Would you say? Um. So looking back on military, you know, I mean, it probably goes without saying that, you know, there was periods where I really suffered intensely, you know, when, uh, you know, there's aspects of selection that kind of resonate in my, in my conscious memory. And I, you know, you never really forget about some of the hoops that you had to go through, some of those hurdles, um, indeed, to sort of get badged, as it were, into UK SF. But it was a tremendous journey and it taught me a lot about myself it taught me very much to dig deep in my case you might argue that it was probably was what it really only set me up for what came next but um but looking back i think you know that experience and um the knowledge and you know some of that uh some of that uh some of that really that sort of mental um, resilience as a result of service in general, not just the, the SF, but in general, you know, um, I mean, I recommend it to any young person. I'm not a sales agent for the British Army, certainly not, or indeed any of the, the tri-services, Army, Navy, Air Force or, or whatever. But I do recommend it in terms of it's a tremendous, um, you know, wide open, colourful life experience. And certainly, you know, the best days of my life, it goes without saying, um, looking back, you know, the opportunities that I had, the training, the professionalism. And, um, you know, I'd like to add, you know, I'd like to add my time with Blue Light Services with the police force to that as well, because I had some tremendous training in that job. And, and um, you know, um, they do largely do a very good job in terms of helping and supporting the British public. Uh, but But, of course, you know, the armed forces are there for, slightly different reasons 
And but all of my experience looking back, um, I mentioned it time and again, but it taught me a lot about resilience, like mental resilience, that ability to sort of dig deep. And um, a lot of that um, sort of stays with me. And um, and I still kind of continue with that that mantra to to keep pushing and to keep driving my own life and my own narrative or the version 2.0 of me forwards. And, you know, so a lot of, you know, uh, uh, there were, there were, there were times of hardship that you alluded to, or you touched on with a question, um, you know, but that's what it's all about. It's the challenges that make the memories almost. I mean, even nowadays, you know, you know, anyone will probably testify and tell you, people that aren't necessarily in that line of work, but they might tell you that, okay, they signed up for a five kilometer fun run, you know, in aid of the local community or a charity or for breast cancer awareness or whatever it might be. But by doing, you know, by pushing themselves just that little bit and and ultimately, you know, typically, you know, having a change of scene on a, on a Sunday morning, um, you know, rather than just being sat around the house, um, and, and they're, they're participating in an event and they're digging deep and they're, and they're, 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 they're having a challenge. They're providing a challenge and they're creating a memory for themselves in the process. And, and there's a big part of the, how some of these challenges and events can, can really work for individuals and, and we can do a lot of good things together. And that's what it's all about. Definitely. So to, to, to wrap this, uh, this discussion speech up, um, is there any closing words of advice you would, you would, you'd like to just sort of close the interview with? In my case, it's pretty simple. You know, I'm, you know, I don't profess to be, you know, the front of all knowledge when it comes to being a motivational speaker per se, but I've learned that um, through my own journey and, um, you know, the, the evident, great challenge that I went through myself and, and extremely, extremely difficult um, uh, sort of steps along the way, because at times for me, it was a bit of a snakes and ladders game, two steps forward, three steps back. What with so many surgeries that I had to endure, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately my message is pretty simple that um, if we, all of us just believe in ourselves, believe in the end goal and what it is that we're, we're trying to achieve, whether it's in work, life, social, you know, um, or, or whatever the project might be, then we ultimately by kind of progression and that, that will to win and that will to keep pushing the boundary and get to an end goal, I think all of us can, you know, figuratively and metaphorically surprise ourselves and pull it out of the bag. And I think I'd probably hopefully evidence that in my talk with some of the episodes and examples of my early years and what I was able to achieve, but ultimately and more so with the version 2.0, uh, because, uh, you know, if I can bounce back from that, I think there's hope for a lot of people out there in terms of what they're trying to achieve in, in their own lives. And that would be my bottom line is um, believe in yourselves and, um, and never stop pushing. It's a short life you know, maintain life by the horns and never stop pushing for what it is that you, um, you know, you're trying to achieve and, and where, you're, where, you, where you want to get to. Wow. Yeah, I, I would agree wholeheartedly there. Uh, so again, Jamie, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out to to come and help us on this project that we're, that we're doing right now. Uh, again, you know, honestly, you know, you've got to go and get this book. It It is very very powerful um you can get it on amazon so make sure you go and uh, go and pick that up um and yeah that's the end of that one lovely to get to know you jamie um and yeah i'll be following your journey from now on across the social medias so thanks thanks for being here my pleasure thank you very much I really hope you enjoyed the show. Um, I just wanted to pull it out there for anyone listening that I offer business coaching, but also life coaching. My life is centered around something called the free Bs, which stands for body, business and balance. When you work with me as a coach, we tackle all three aspects of life. So you as an individual, body, mindset, health, fitness, knowledge, 
education. Business B obviously stands for your business, improving, maximizing opportunities, elevating, making more money. And balance stands for your for friends, family, loved ones, you know, making time for everything in your life. And the free Bs is the core element to that. If you'd like to learn more, I would ask you to reach out to me on uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you might be consuming my information. Um, or you can email me directly at wayne at offthetools.co.uk. I'm here waiting to assist you to elevate across all aspects of life. Have a good one. No excuses. Let's go.